The following message by Pastor Spencer is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to be with you, brothers and sisters. Our pastor, Pastor Tim, is away this weekend. He's gotten away, he and Amanda. So uh, they're getting some, uh, some, some time away on a small vacation. So please pray for them and uh, that God would be with them and bless them and that uh, they would get back safely. And, and Lord willing, he'll be back here in the pulpit next, next week. Uh, today, we want to continue on from where Pastor Tim left off last week from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses, we're going to look together today at verses 14 through 18. And just before we do that, as you're turning in your Bibles, you probably see the Lord's Supper cups. Um, you might want to just uh, be ready because sometimes you know the bread comes off the top and then underneath the juice part. Um, I just had to have. Pastor Scott opened mine for me because I'm like a child. I can't, I was fiddling around and the juice was starting to spill, spill open. So um, just be aware um, of the hazards of, of that right now. Okay, let's read it together. I want to start reading again in verse 11 and then we'll read through verse 18 of Ephesians chapter two. Paul writes there, therefore remember that at, the, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray together and ask God to bless us as we open the word of God. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in the name of your Son, and we pray that as we open the word of life, that you would speak to us by the person of the Spirit, that you would change us, and that you would feed us your most holy word for Christ's sake, amen. Well, we've been studying Ephesians. We've been seeing how Paul is writing to this group of Gentile Christians in Ephesus, writing to them about the great salvation that Jew and Gentile share in common in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He opens up in Ephesians chapter 1 with that amazing opening section, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and praises him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all the great work of redemption that he has done. And then opening up in chapter 2, he reminds these Ephesians of their former spiritual deadness. He says, you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins. You, you walked according to the course of this world, but now in Christ because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, in that cross work and in that rising work and in that ascending work, you have been saved in him and now you should walk in the good works that he has prepared for you. 
One of the great examples of Christ's salvation, though, is, is found not simply in the individual lives of these Ephesians, but it's found in the grand sweep of history. In verses 11 through 13, Paul now has reminded these Gentiles and said, remember, only 30 years ago, right, if Paul's writing this around AD 60-ish, Jesus, his uh, death and crucifixion was around in the 30-ish range. Only 30 years ago, you guys did not know God. Only 30 years ago, the whole world sat in darkness. Only 30 years ago, remember what it was like. He said, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were separated from Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. And he says, this has been solved in Jesus Christ. You were separated from God's people and you were separated from God. But now in Jesus Christ, you're reconciled to God's people and you're now reconciled to God. And so now in verses 14 through 18, Paul is going to describe to these Ephesians just how God has worked in Jesus Christ to bring all this about in their case. He writes and opens up in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. He's building off of verse 13 where he says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles, you were separated, you were far away, you lived way over there, away from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Now this construction is, in the Greek, is, is, is a convertible proposition. What that means is that he's saying, Jesus Christ is our peace, and the opposite is true as well. Our peace is Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Now, what is peace? What does the world think about whenever it talks about peace? What do you think about whenever you hear the word peace? How would you define it? Well, oftentimes we think about peace simply as the absence of strife. It means people aren't throwing rocks at each other or shooting at each other or bickering or arguing or shouting at each other. And that's a good thing whenever that stuff is not going on. But the Bible's understanding of peace is, is much broader than that. Peace in the Bible, we could define it this way. Peace is a state. It's a condition, a situation where everything is the way it should be. Everything is the way it should be. The, the Old Testament word for peace has the idea of wholeness, there's not any loose bits or pieces out here that are not out of harmony. Everything is unified. Everything is working together in harmony the way it ought to be. Peace is not simply the absence of violence, but it's perfect order in all things. Whenever our relationship with God and our relationship with other people and our relationship with the whole of creation is perfect, unified. It involves blessing and prosperity and growth and joy and happiness, everything. That's what peace is, total comprehensive wholeness. And Paul here says that in Jesus Christ, he himself is the one who makes everything the way it should be. 
At the very beginning, you'll remember Paul drops this little line in verse, I believe it's 10, about Jesus Christ and says that in Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, peace bringing about the reconciliation of the whole universe, the whole cosmos in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, is prophesied in the Old Testament as the Prince of Peace. You remember that from Isaiah chapter 9. He's the one who brings about perfect order, eliminates violence, and the people of God dwell in safety and security. He is our peace, Paul says. And how has he established peace? Well, there's really three ways in these verses that Paul describes how Jesus Christ has brought everything together, unified everything together in perfect harmony in in, in a global and a historical way. And, And this also applies to us individually. The first way he says is this, is that he has made us one new man. He has made peace by making one new man. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He, Jesus Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in order that for the purpose, with the intention that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Remember, the, the Gentiles that Paul's writing to were just a short while ago separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, and estranged. They had nothing to do with the people of God. You remember the Old Testament scriptures where God establishes the sign of circumcision, and that one of the purposes of that was not only to be a sign of God's covenant to Abraham and the promise ultimately of blessing to the world, but also was to separate Israel, to hedge Israel in away from the rest of the nations, to put them aside for a special purpose, because through him, through Israel, he was going to bring forth Jesus. We're, that we're told in the Old Testament they had no portion in the Lord. It was as if the law told the Gentiles, the surrounding nations, at this time, you have no portion in the Lord right now. He, these promises are not for you. There was a wall, a, a separation, a fence between Israel and the nations. Now, it's true there was sometimes some crossover. We read about Ruth in the Old Testament. She was a Moabite, a Gentile, and she became part of the people of Israel. And we'll read about people like Naaman in Second Kings, who was a Gentile but became a believer in the God of Israel. But by and large, during the Old Testament time before Jesus, Israel was it. They were it, and the rest of the nations were in darkness. Can you imagine growing up in a home, in a Gentile home, and never hearing about a God that loves sinners? Never hearing about a God who's going to send a savior to bring us back to God. Never hearing the Ten Commandments. Um, Never hearing that. Now, this distinction, this fence itself, 
was the law. Paul describes this. He says that he tore down the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles because there was a law, a sharp distinction. The law was a protective fence for Israel. It was meant to protect them, to protect them from idolatry, to preserve them and to partition them off. We read in Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20. He, speaking about God, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. It protected Israel, but it was a barricade against the Gentiles, alienating them. And Paul would describe it in Acts 14, verse 16, that before Jesus Christ came, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. But Paul says now, and he's writing to these Ephesians and saying this, when Jesus Christ came and was born and died on the cross at this time, 30 years before, when he died on the cross, he broke down In his flesh, that wall, that barricade came tumbling down. You remember the famous lines uttered by Ronald Reagan, tear down this wall. Jesus Christ tore down the wall. In verse 15, Paul says he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He got rid of it. And he didn't just simply get rid of it by saying it's going to be getting rid of. He got rid of it by fulfilling it himself. He obeyed every single one of the commandments. He was the perfect sacrifice. The whole thing was pointing to him. And so in fulfilling it, he abolished it. All the ceremonies, all the washings, all those rules, all those sacrifices, the blood, the altar, the priest, the temple, the festivals, the food regulations, all of this was pointing them to Jesus Christ and to his redemptive work. And so when he died and rose again, he fulfilled everything in the law, and in fulfilling it, he abolished it. It is finished, he said. And so Jew and Gentile are released from the special ceremonial aspects and the unique things given to Israel. And he says he tore down the wall that stood between the Jews and the Gentiles, and we talked about it before, about how Jews and Gentiles really didn't like each other. The Gentiles didn't like the Jews, and the Jews thought the Gentiles, as they called them, dogs. Filthy, disgusting, And the Gentiles thought the the Jews were not very nice people either. But in Jesus Christ now, he's destroyed the wall that produced this hatred, this enmity, this continual fighting. One of the things I read uh, recently, I've started a new book on uh, World War II, and one of the things it, it points out is the continual fighting that had taken place for hundreds of years between France and Germany. They fought tons of wars over the span of centuries, over the same turf, continually hostile to each other, hating each other, building arms. One side would win, then the other side would win, and they were always waiting for the next war. That's the way the world works, isn't it, between people? We're always just waiting for the next war, always waiting for the next division between people, always waiting for the next open expression of hatred to God. But Paul says that in Jesus Christ, he's tore down the wall and he has created in himself one new man. 
He's making one new people. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that all of the Gentiles become Jews? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that he came to make in himself one new Israel. He doesn't say that, does he? He also doesn't say that the Jews now are all just part of the Gentiles. He's not simply merging the Jews and the Gentiles together, kind of blending them together. Well, how do they become one? Look at what Paul says. He put them into one new man. Paul says that Jesus created in himself a new creation. Jesus does not simply merge Jews and Gentiles into one group, friends. He is making a new creation. Jesus did not come to make you a better American. He didn't come to make you a a, a new Michigander or a new you. He didn't come to make you a, 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 a new Jew or a new Gentile. He came to make you in him to put you in him, to take you out of your old self and put you into the new self in him. You see the Jew-Gentile distinction? We're still talking about things in this world. And Paul is saying, I'm talking about the new creation, the next world that God has brought about in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus would say things like this. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Remember, we have to give up ourselves and uh, get rid of the world. And Paul is, and, and Jesus there is calling us away from our old ways of thinking, our old, old selves, our old uh, thinking that we rule ourselves. And he's calling us into Jesus Christ. And here's similarly, Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, we have a new creation. He's a new Adam, the beginning of a new human race. And Jesus is the first of a new kind of human He's, in a sense, a new species. And all those who believe in him are part of this new humanity as well, this one new man. And if you're a believer here as well, it's important for us to talk about what our identity is. We hear that language of identity, don't we, often? People say, well, I identify as gay, or I identify as straight, or I identify with this or that. Paul here is saying that the identity of Christians and our first identity is that we're in Christ. Is that how you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself primarily as a man or as a woman or as an American or as a Republican or a Democrat? Or do you think about yourself first and foremost as in Christ? I've been taken out of the old Adam and I've been put into the new one, if I can put it that way. Now, this would have blown the Jews' minds because the Jews thought that whenever Jesus, the Messiah, came along, he would have brought everybody into Israel and made them Jews, but he did not. He came to make a new creation, and this church is a new creation. Notice, by the way, who made it. Jesus did. You did not decide to make yourself a new creation. Jesus made you one. And this church is part of the the new community, the new humanity that Jesus Christ is making. He wrote this in Galatians chapter three. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself would say, there will be one flock and one shepherd. We are one in Christ. And Christ has brought about peace between people whenever they come to him. Secondly, he has reconciled us to God. He's not simply made peace between us. He's made peace with God. He says this in this passage. He writes this, that he abolished the law of commandments, expressing ordinances to make one new man, and in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Jesus Christ is our peace because he not only reconciles us to each other, but he reconciled us to God. Now remember, the the Gentiles, we were told earlier, Paul wrote to them and said, you guys were separated from God. You were without God, without hope. You had no hope of any good thing coming from the God of Israel. You were separated from Christ. He earlier wrote that they were dead in trespasses and sins. They were children of wrath, in darkness, enemies of God and of God's people. But notice also what Paul says here. He says that not only are the Gentiles reconciled to God, but he says that we are both reconciled to God, Jew and Gentile, in one body. The Jews, just as much as the Gentiles, needed to be reconciled to God. Now, we might be surprised by this because the Jews had the Bible, didn't they? They had the scriptures. They knew the rules. They knew the promises. They heard it from an early age. And so it's kind of surprising they needed to be reconciled to God as well. The reality was, though, is that whenever Israel heard the law, they heard it, but they could never do it. Friends, if our Christianity or our religion is built upon what we do, it's going to shatter. It's going to fall to pieces. The commandments of God, even though they were good, could never change the hearts of these people. If you're here today and you come and you think Christianity is about Jesus making you a better person, He will make you better, but he's going to make you better by making you a totally new person. But you can't save yourself by doing good deeds. The Jews could not. They they tried to. Paul knew this. He tried to obey all of God's rules, but he could never do it. In fact, the more he tried to obey the law, the more sin took over his life. Remember that in Romans chapter 7? He said, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, whenever I heard the commandment and God told me what to do, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law, the commandments are good and holy and righteous. They tell us what we ought to do and who we ought to be. But the reality is, is I don't do what I ought to do and I am not the person I ought to be. That's what the law teaches us, doesn't it? And so eventually God would tell the Jews in, in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So we're both 
needing reconciled to God. Those who've heard the law can't do it, and those who haven't heard the law don't do it as well, and they already show the work of the law, Paul says, is written on their hearts. They already have some semblance of what's right and wrong, and they don't do it. So both are guilty, both are under sin, and both need reconciled to God, and the one way to do that is through Jesus Christ. How can the wall between us and God be torn down? Well, he says he did it in one body, notice, through the cross, through the cross. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Now, isn't it interesting? The first way that Jesus inaugurates and starts and kicks off his public ministry is not by um, doing it maybe in the way we would think he should have done it. How did he do it? There was this call for baptism, and it was repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all these people are coming. And the Jordan River is not necessarily a clear, beautiful, uh, flowing river. In some places, it's very muddy, dirty. These people are coming to the Jordan River, getting baptized, confessing their sins. And then there comes this man from Galilee, And John sees him and says, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus inaugurates his ministry not by uh, showing off his strength or his might. He shows the ministry by getting down into the sinner's water that dirty, disgusting water where all those people have confessed all their sins and filth and iniquities. And Jesus goes down into that water because he's come to get down there to bring us up out of it. And then the heavens break open. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends upon him. This is the one who's going to bring us back to God and bring us from our sins and make us right with God. And on the cross, he does that in the preeminent way where he took the place of sinners. He suffers, he's judged, he's sentenced to death, he bleeds, he's crucified, he dies. And when we read that passage of scripture, it's very important for us to remember, he shouldn't be there, but I should. And whenever we read the whole gospel narratives, we're reading what we ought to have been, but we weren't, and he was for us in our place. Everything he does is for the glory of God and for the good of sinners. He's taking the place that you and I deserve so that the hostility, the hatred that exists, rightfully so from God's angle, because we're sinners and we've rebelled against him, and he brings us back to a right relationship with God so that the war's over. He is our peace. He's our peace. And today, Jesus Christ gives himself to each and every one of you. He doesn't ask you to make yourself better. He simply knows that you can't do anything, but he offers himself, gives himself completely to every single one of you and says, receive me, look to me. I have taken the place of sinners, and in me, you can have peace with God as well. 
You can't buy reconciliation, but it's given to you as a free gift through what I've done. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And when he rose from the grave, he came to his disciples. And what did he say? Peace be to you. It's done. He established a permanent and lasting peace with God. So he makes us one. He reconciles us, gives us peace with each other. He establishes a right legal relationship with God. We're reconciled to him and God is reconciled to us through the the blood, the shedding atonement work of Christ on the cross. And we're told in verse 17 that having atoned for sin, he rose from the grave. And in this section we see he gives both of us access to God in one spirit through himself. Paul says in verse 17, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, Paul, whenever he is saying this, is stealing language, borrowing language from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 57, 19, where we read, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. A similar idea is found in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, it's interesting. The word for preached here is the word used for preaching the good news of the gospel, announcing and proclaiming this news. The idea of proclaiming in the Old Testament is an interesting word because it can be used in the context of battle. For instance, in 2 Samuel 18, we read about a battle. Remember, King David was there and Absalom, his son, rebelled against him and led a giant rebellion and there was a battle in the woods and Absalom's hair gets caught in the tree and he's, he's killed. You remember that, that, that conflict? Well, Absalom's killed and David's men are victorious in the field of battle. And right after that, in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19, we read that, that one of the individuals said this, let me run and carry news. Let me run and announce the good news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Let me go and proclaim and publish and tell the king and announce to him because David there is waiting. He hasn't heard what the result is from the battlefield. David's not fighting the battle. Those two armies are fighting. He's not commanding. He's waiting on the news and it could go either way. Absalom could win and David's life is over or David's men could win and David is restored as king. The, the battle's in the balance. What's gonna happen? The runner runs says, I'm going to tell the news to David. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. Same word, to David. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the announcement of victory on the battlefield. It's the announcement that God in Jesus Christ has won the battle at the cross by raising from the dead and proclaims peace to the world. 
The runner would go and bring this news of victory, of peace to those concerned. And here we're told Jesus Christ, after his death and resurrection, and I believe he, what he's saying here is, is he came and preached peace. Well, Jesus Christ did that through the apostles and through pastors in churches and, and to the lost. He sent his ministers, his apostles, to go and proclaim to the whole world peace to the far and peace to the near, peace to the Jew, peace to the Gentile, peace to the farthest ends of the world that God has reconciled God and man through his son, Jesus Christ. Proclaim peace. Liberty to the whole world. He has ushered in peace, reconciliation, wholeness for all who believe. And this peace includes not simply peace between each other. Remember the original story whenever Jesus was born? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But it also includes this amazing reality of access. To God. He says he proclaimed peace all over for through him we both, Jew and Gentile, none excluded, all who believe have access in one spirit to the Father. What does Paul mean by access? A couple of illustrations I'm going to try to use to describe this before we wrap up. In the Old Testament, there was only so close you could get to God in the Old Testament, right? Remember, he's a consuming fire. See what he did to Egypt, um, kills all the firstborn, sends uh, plagues upon them. And even God's people, right, whenever they get too close to God in ways they shouldn't, God sends fire. He opens up the ground and consumes uh, his enemies. Remember the rebels in Numbers. The story of Numbers is full of instances of this where God's people continually rebel and God sends plagues, opens up the ground to consume people, sends fire. And, and eventually God describes himself and he becomes known as our Lord is a consuming fire. Not simply a fire, a consuming one. Well, God made it clear that not just anybody and everybody was to go into the most holy place, right? There was the tabernacle, and, and God's, the Levites were there guarding the tabernacle so that way people didn't get too close. And then even going into the tabernacle and going into the holy of holies, there was only one part of the tribe of Israel, the descendants of Aaron, who could go into the most intimate holy of holies place. And they could only go in there one time a year. Before going into that place, we're told that Aaron and his sons had to be set apart. Moses had to be brought, to, brought Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent. We're told that Aaron had to be washed with water. The priestly clothes had to be put on him. He was anointed with oil. They had to make the right sacrifices. And then Moses would take the blood and put it on Aaron and on the garments and on Aaron's sons and on their garments. And in doing this, they were ordained, they were set apart as holy to the Lord. In fact, that's what it said on their hats, holy to the Lord. And once a year, and only once a year, they had access into the holy of holies, the place where God's 
presence resided like it did nowhere else on the face of the globe. The sacred, holy, devoted place where the cherubim were. And that was access. Later on, Isaiah would have a vision. The prophet Isaiah, you remember, was a holy man, a good man, a prophet of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that he had a vision. He was in the presence with the king, the Lord, God Almighty, the God of hosts. And he tells us that he saw the Lord in all of his splendor. He was in the holy place. He said that there were, there were creatures flying around and they were shouting and calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're told that the foundations of the threshold shook because God was on the throne. And the house was filled with smoke and, and Isaiah says, I shouldn't be here. I don't have access. Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I don't have a right to be here. And then one of the seraphim flies to him, takes one of the coals from off the altar and touches his mouth and says, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Through Jesus Christ, we are a holy people and we have rights, we have access. Through Jesus Christ, notice he says that because the blood is put on us. We're anointed with the Spirit we're cleansed by the washing of regeneration. And God takes the coal from off the altar and touches us and says, you're atoned for. Come into the king's presence. And through Jesus Christ in one spirit, we are ushered into the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, as we think about the Lord's Supper, as we think about closing off this, this is wonderful privileges that God has done for us in Jesus. God has made us right with each other, reconciled us to God and given us access. We look at ourselves and sometimes we wonder, am I worthy to come to this table today to eat this bread and to drink this cup? Sometimes we may wonder, am I really a Christian? Is Christ really in me? But we have to look at Christ outside of ourselves. And he tells us that when we look to him, that we, have, that we trust in him, and that even though we, we recognize our sin that remains at our core, we are no longer our old selves. He has washed us, changed us. We are a new humanity. And Jesus Christ comes up to us and says, listen, that's why I suffered and died on the cross so that you could be a new man, a new woman in me, and you could be one with my new creation. Well, we think, well, being a new man doesn't make up for what I've done. 
There's still this gap between me and God. Does God hear my prayers? There's still a debt I could never pay. I had a sinful heart, all the sinful desires, the thoughts, the wants, the wishes, the glances, the meditations, the actions, the words, the things I didn't do. All that I am is full of sin. That can't make up for what I've done. And Jesus Christ comes to us and says, that's why I died on the cross, to make you right with the Father. I did all that I did to pardon your sins, and your sins have no authority over you. If I am for you, who can be against you? Well, then we think, well, thanks for reconciling me. I don't have to go to hell now, but thank you. But I know that after all of this, after uh, giving yourself up, sending the Spirit to make me a new man, all of that, you've pardoned me, but you can't really want me to be near you. And Jesus says, that's why I died on the cross. I died, not simply to reconcile you, but to bring you right into the most holy place with me, with the Father. God is not angry with you. He loves you, and that's why he sent me. He sent me to come fetch you and to bring you back. That's why I went all the way down to the baptism waters. That's why I came up from them. That's why I went to the cross. That's why I am where I am at now, so I could establish peace. I came and died on the cross to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The Lord's Supper is a meal and we sit at table together because we are one in Christ and our reconciliation is one in Christ and now our access is one in Christ. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Spencer from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.